0: Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D, and today I'll be bringing you part one of the case of Kara Knott in San Diego, California. Let's get right to it. San Diego, California pretty consistently ranks as one of the top 10 most expensive places to live in the United States. And that's a fact. Having spent six years of my life there, I can say without a shadow of a doubt that the rent is too damn high. I'm with Jimmy on this one. But maybe the rent is too damn high because it's one of the most beautiful places to live. There's the famous San Diego Zoo, Sunset Cliffs, Balboa Park, Coronado, and I could literally go on all day. I've lived all over, and there's nothing quite like Southern California. Deep down, I'll always be a Floridian. But I'd be lying if I told you that there wasn't something special about America's finest city. San Diego is a vibrant coastal city known for its beautiful beaches, pleasant climate, and laid-back atmosphere. And it has been for a long time. Today's case takes us all the way back to 1986, when San Diego was a city on the rise with a growing population, diverse neighborhoods, a thriving tourism industry, and also a false sense of security. You see, way back then, for a city of its size, San Diego had a pretty low crime rate, and the general feeling was that nothing bad ever really happened in San Diego. It's easy to forget how different life was back in the late 80s, but things were different. Life was simpler. There weren't smartphones and only a handful of people even had internet. Christmas of 1986, right there in San Diego, a guy named Peter was the subject of an entire news piece because he used his dinosaur of an IBM compatible to Christmas shop at Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom from home. CBS 8 San Diego ran a whole segment detailing how easy it was to just tap the key read the item's description and tap another key to order the items. There were no pictures, just a cluster of words describing everything from scarves to pillows. And the fact that Peter hated crowds so much, he'd rather fire up his IBM and have to rely on a simple description in his imagination to do his shopping was a subject worthy of the news is kind of funny now, since we hop on Amazon and have anything and everything delivered to our door every day and twice on Sunday. But at least we get pictures. Anyhow, that Christmas of 86 wasn't only a magical time for Peter and his IBM, but also for the Knot family. Sam and his wife Joyce were looking forward to having all their children under the same roof again. By 1986, the Not children, Cynthia, Cheryl, Kara, and John, weren't children anymore. Cynthia was married, but she and her husband were temporarily living back home with her parents. Cheryl and Kara were already in college, and John was too. He was actually back home for his first holiday season after leaving for college that year. With everyone heading off in different directions, Sam and Joyce thought this could have been the last of the great Not family Christmases, and the entire family was excited to spend this time together at their family home in El Cajon. El Cajon is a suburb of San Diego, just 17 miles east of the city's downtown district. At the time, according to the LA Times, Sam and Joyce's middle daughter Kara was 20 years old and a student at San Diego State University. She had graduated from Valhalla High School two years earlier in 1984 and by Christmas of 1986 was already a junior at San Diego State, where she was chasing her dream of becoming an elementary school teacher. According to Kara's family as they spoke to investigate Discovery, life for Kara was good. She had a supportive family, a bright future ahead of her, and a boyfriend named Wayne, who was her high school sweetheart. The two had met running track in their high school days and even went off to college together. Wayne was studying at San Diego State, too. His major was microbiology. Kara's family thought Wayne was pretty perfect for her. He was an all around good guy, and he was really into Kara. And it seems she felt the same way. Wayne had been hanging out with Kara at her parents' house that Christmas day. That was until he started feeling sick. They all thought he might have had the flu, so Wayne headed back to his house in Escondido. It was about a 45-minute drive from the not-home-in-El-Cajon north to Wayne's in Escondido. Kara decided she'd go home with him since he wasn't feeling well. She'd go along and make sure he was taken care of. So that's what she did. Christmas Day came and went, and two days later on December 27th, Kara called home to let her parents know that Wayne was feeling better, so she was headed back home. That was a little after 8 p.m. Kara's family expected her to walk through the door in a matter of minutes. But as those minutes turned into an hour, everyone began to worry a little. If there was one thing her family knew about her, it's that she was cautious and responsible. If she said she was on her way, then she was on her way so why hadn't she made it home yet? Her nervous family tried to keep busy by working on a puzzle, all the while checking the windows, expecting to see her white 1968 VW bug pull in. But by 10 p.m., there was still no sign of her. Her dad, Sam, couldn't take it anymore. He felt in the depths of his soul that something was very wrong. According to Sam, as he spoke to the LA Times, a feeling of doom overtook him. He jumped up out of his chair suddenly and headed out the door to find his daughter. The family took a divide-and-conquer approach. Kara's mom, Joyce, stayed behind to keep watch. Sister Cynthia and her husband, Bill, headed in one direction and Sam in another. According to the LA Times, Joyce called Wayne at about 10.45 p.m. Wayne recalled to the outlet that he was still sick in bed and had brought the phone and set it next to the bed so he'd be able to answer Kara when she called to tell him she had made it home. He was shocked when it was Joyce on the line, so he hopped out of bed to go join in on the search. He thought it was possible Kara had ran out of gas. He knew her tank was running low before she left, so he rushed out thinking she must have been stranded somewhere along her route. Through the night, the family drove up and down the freeways, checking each and every exit. Early on in the search, her father Sam flagged down a California Highway Patrol officer who was sitting in his cruiser near a shopping center in El Cajon. Sam asked the officer to help him look for his daughter, but he refused. Twice more through the night, Sam asked for help at 1.30 and 3.30 a.m., but all three times he was told that Carol would have to be missing for a full 24 hours before a missing persons report would be taken, and that was policy. Three times, officers did precisely zero to help this man look for his missing daughter. This crushed Sam. And he wasn't the only one trying to get help from authorities either. Kara's mom, Joyce, had called all the hospitals to see if she had been injured in some kind of an accident. She hadn't, so Joyce called 911 to report her daughter missing. She was told that since Kara was an adult, a full 48 hours would have to pass before a report would be taken. This is normally the part where I tell you that this whole waiting period is incorrect and present day it is. But back in 1986, things were different. And that was the policy for departments in San Diego and many other places. As it turns out, Kara's case is a big part of why there are no longer time restrictions on reporting someone missing. We'll get to that part a little later. But first, back to the story. Kara's family searched all through the night. Her father Sam would later recall to the LA Times that the family must have gone at least 1,200 miles, driving back and forth along the I-15 route Carol would have taken to get home from Wayne's, stopping at each exit. At this point, dawn was breaking when Cynthia and her husband Bill turned down the Mercy Road off-ramp. It was a place that had been checked at least twice before. But with dawn breaking, they were able to see further down the off-ramp, past the mounds of dirt and road barriers leading to the U.S. 395 Bridge. You see, at one time, U.S. 395 was the main road running from San Diego to Escondido, and all the way up north to Washington State. But over the years, according to Flood Gap, sections of the road were abandoned as I-15 was built. The stretch of the old freeway at the Mercy Road exit led to the old 395 bridge, which had been turned into a bike path in 1977. Cars no longer traveled down that particular stretch of the road. The 15 runs parallel to the old road and it's so close it's impossible to even see the old bridge when you're driving on the new interstate, which at night makes for a dark and desolate area. But as dawn broke and the light crept in, Cynthia and Bill spotted something beyond the dirt mounds and barricades. It was Kara's white 1968 VW Bug, parked at the very bottom of the off-ramp just before the bridge. They rushed over to the car, but there was no sign of Kara. The driver's side window was rolled down, the keys were in the car, and the bags she had taken to Wayne's were still in the back seat. It was strange, but it looked as if she had stopped, rolled down her window, and then just disappeared. But why would Kara stop here? Bill would later recall to the LA Times that the scene looked like something straight out of a nightmare. He stated to the outlet, It was the weirdest place I've ever been. There was trash dumped all over the place. There was a mattress over on the side. It was like something out of the worst horror movie you'd ever seen. Cynthia and Bill screamed for Kara, but got no response, so they called police. It was a little after 6 a.m. when San Diego Sheriff's deputies responded to the scene, and as they did, Sam spotted the cruiser turning into the Mercy Road off-ramp. He followed, and when he got there, he found his daughter Cynthia with her husband, and then he saw Kara's car. Dawn was breaking, but it wasn't quite light out yet. It was still foggy and dark. An eerie feeling came over the family as they watched officers search, and at one point, one of the officers walked to the middle of the bridge. The policeman glanced down and then motioned for another officer. The two looked down, talked for a moment, and then went back to their patrol car and put on gloves. As they headed down the bridge to the creek bed, Kara's family knew they had found her, and it wasn't good. And they were right. 65 feet down from the bridge and a dried portion of the creek, officers located the body of 20-year-old Kara Knott. As her family tried to wrap their minds around the fact that their beautiful and full of life Kara was gone, investigators got to work. And it was clear right away that Kara had been violently assaulted and murdered before being thrown off the bridge. There were obvious ligature marks around her neck and it appeared she had been struck in the head. Investigators thought the bruise looked like it had come from a flashlight. It was also painfully clear that Kara had fought for her life that night. Tissue was found under her fingernails and blood on one of the white leather boots she was wearing. Fibers and hairs were collected from the bridge. Further down from where Kara's car had been found, investigators noticed a skid mark on the bike path, as if a car had stopped at the bridge. Measurements of those tire prints were taken. And when it came to Kara's car, it appeared she had just simply stopped and rolled down her window before she was attacked. There was nothing wrong with the car. It was in good working condition and she had plenty of gas in the tank. Investigators located a gas receipt in the car showing that Kara had stopped at a Chevron in Escondido near the North County Fair Shopping Center at 8.27pm before she got on the freeway. As investigators tried to make sense of the scene, they theorized that since there was nothing down that exit, she must have been directed there by someone she knew and trusted, or maybe someone in a position of authority. But there was another theory. You see, at the time, the Green River Killer was terrorizing the Pacific Northwest. By 1986, 40 women had been killed in Washington State and Oregon. Of course, that death toll would only rise. Over the span of at least 20 years, the shitbag that is Gary Ridgway would go on and be convicted of murdering 49 women. He confessed to killing between 70 and 75, and he's suspected of killing up to 90. Though a connection seemed possible initially, Kara didn't fit the profile. Ridgway targeted mostly women working in the sex trade or young girls who had run away from home. But I'd rather flick a hungry tiger in the balls than give Shitbag Ridgeway any more publicity, so we'll move it right along. Carol was cautious and super responsible. She always called her parents and let them know when and where she was going, just as she had done that night. Her parents had always taught her to be safe, lock her doors as she drove, not to stop for anyone she didn't know, and to find a police officer if she needed help. She had just taken a self-defense class in the days before her murder with her mom and sister, and the instructor had told the women that if they were attacked, they should scratch their attacker's eyes and face. Kara always played it safe. She wouldn't have put herself in a situation she thought was dangerous, so the theory that she had stopped for someone she knew or someone she trusted made a lot more sense. Investigators began by looking at those closest to Kara, starting with her family. They, of course, were quickly cleared. But what about Wayne? I mean, it's usually the boyfriend or the husband, right? But Wayne was also cleared right off the bat. When Kara left his house, he was home still sick in bed and his sister confirmed that. And besides, there were no issues in their relationship. Wayne was a good guy and he and Kara loved each other. He had no reason to hurt her. As investigators widened their search beyond Kara's closest friends and family, her case got a whole lot of media attention. Things like this just didn't happen in San Diego, and Kara's murder gripped the city in fear. Young women were scared to leave their houses. If something like this could happen to Kara, it could happen to anyone. Their sense of security had been shattered in an instant, and it was terrifying. Media attention can be a double-edged sword. On one hand, it can generate the information investigators need. But on the other, it can create a panic and tie up a whole lot of phone lines, as well meaning people call in to report things that likely have nothing to do with the case. But again, sometimes all it takes for a case to be busted wide open is a single tip from just the right person. In Kara's case, police were faced with both sides of the sword. Tips came pouring in immediately, and a huge part of that was Kara's family. Not only had they led the search from the moment Kara vanished and ultimately found her, the day after her murder, they made flyers and were out there covering the city with them. Crime Stoppers offered a $1,000 reward, but Kara's family upped the ante to 10000 and friends, neighbors, and the community eventually pitched in and more than doubled that reward. According to detectives, as they spoke to investigate Discovery, some of the tips that came in seemed really promising at first. There were tips about a guy picking up hitchhikers near the Chevron gas station. They received another tip from a witness who had seen a blonde woman being pushed into a car near Mercy Road. And those tips were investigated, but it turned out they had nothing to do with Kara. A week after Christmas, memorial services were held at Glen Abbey Memorial Park in nearby Chula Vista. The community showed up and showed their support for Kara and her family. There was a crowd of over 250 people. A few of them were homicide detectives. Investigators also attended the funeral as they often do since many times the killer shows up too. And there was one mourner who caught their attention, a longtime male family friend whose actions at the funeral seemed over the top, at least to investigators. So they kept their eye on him. Around that same time, San Diego Police Sergeant Jill Fleming was called back to the scene where Kara's body had been found by the California Highway Patrol. A CHP officer had detained two men near there and he thought they seemed suspicious. Sergeant Fleming recalled the events to investigate Discovery. When she arrived on scene, she asked the officer why he had detained the men and he said because they were at the scene. She pressed further, asking if he had any reason to think they had murdered Kara and he said no, and then the conversation took a strange turn. The officer began asking Sergeant Fleming what homicide detectives had told her about the murder. The vibe was off. The highway patrolman seemed way too excited and it didn't feel to Jill like any other conversation she had ever had with any other law enforcement officer, ever. And the questions got even more strange the longer the two talked. The patrolman told her that he had heard they found an earlobe in the victim's mouth. He then proceeded to grab his own earlobes and pull on them as he stated, I have both of mine. He then asked the sergeant what information investigators could get from an autopsy. She began to kind of go over the forensic evidence that can be gathered, And when she got to the part about blood types and scraping under the fingernails, the patrolman began cleaning and picking at his own fingernails right there in front of her. He then asked her again what she had heard about the murder. She started to say she got thrown over this side of the bridge, motioning to where she thought Kara had been thrown. But the patrolman cut her off and said, no, you don't even know what you're talking about. She got thrown over this side of the bridge. Sergeant Fleming fired back and said, if you know so much, why are you asking me? You obviously read up more than I did. The patrolman got pissed. She could see it all over his face. He said, what do you think is going to happen? And Sergeant Fleming responded, to be honest, I hope they find him and hang him by his balls. At that point, the patrolman's pissed off turned into fury, and he didn't even try to hide it. He stated, you don't know what you're talking about. It could have been an accident. Something got out of control. And then he turned around, got in his cruiser and hauled ass. The two suspicious men she had been called out to the scene for were released and Sergeant Fleming was shook. She recalled that had this patrolman not been in a marked unit, she would have questioned if he was actually a cop and that had she not been in uniform and armed, she would have been afraid. Not only was the whole encounter off, he was making excuses for a murderer. And cops? Well, cops don't do that. When she got back to the station, she wrote up a report detailing everything. She put it on the detective's desk and told them that they needed to pay attention. This was four days after Kara's murder. And detectives did follow up. They found that the patrolman was considered one of CHP's best and he was working the beat in the area where Kara had been murdered. But his logbook showed him miles away, finishing up another call at the time the murder had occurred. Maybe he was just overwhelmed that such a horrific crime had taken place on his beat on his watch. Detectives stuck a pin in it for now, but they did continue to monitor the scene where Kara had been found because it really is so common for the killer to return. One day, detectives arrived on scene and saw that male family friend they thought was over the top at the funeral walking across the bridge. They asked him what he was doing and he said he was just checking to see if he could find anything. It was odd and what was even more strange was that when they looked into him, a car belonging to him seemed to be tied to that tip that had been called in about the woman being pushed into the car near Mercy Road. So, detectives went to his house and took photos of the car but after speaking to witnesses, they realized the car was the wrong color. And after speaking to the family friend, detectives learned that it actually made perfect sense for him to be so distraught. He had known the Knott family for years and was especially close to Kara. The night of the murder, he was at home and had people to vouch for him. They were back to square one. As the days passed with no arrest, the fear that gripped the community intensified. Parents saw their own daughters in Kara and young women saw themselves. The community demanded that this monster, whoever he was, be caught, and quickly. In order to help dispel fears and offer safety tips, the California Highway Patrol did a ride-along news segment with NBC7 San Diego. 13-year veteran CHP officer Craig Pyre, who sometimes acted as the local CHP safety information officer, took journalists on a ride-along as he stopped and helped stranded motorists along the interstate, highlighting the dangers and giving out safety tips. Now, once you get into a a car with somebody, uh, you're at their mercy. If your car should become disabled, the rule of thumb is stay inside. There are signs you can get to put on the back window to summon for help. If strangers should offer assistance, Tell them to call police or the CHP. Just stay in the vehicle, lock all the doors, uh, turn on the emergency flashers, um, and wait for uh, help to come. Even if you have to wait all night, it's better to be in the safety of your vehicle and spend the night than to uh, try to walk and get assistance. Because if you do decide to walk, the CHP says you never know who you may meet along the road. Anything could happen. Uh... Being a female, you could be raped, robbed if you're a male, um, all the way to where you could be uh, killed. Uh, once you get in that other person's car, you're at their mercy. Uh, the gas tank is broken under the bottom, right? And you can't fill it up. The bottom line, though, is that preventing all this trouble is easy. Be sure your car works, and as simple as it sounds, be sure you've got gas. Because even if you're lucky enough to get some, you still may be taking your life. In your own hands. Do you realize how dangerous it is? Yes, I realize. In fact, I was putting the gas in and a 18-wheeler came by and almost blew me away. Truthfully. After the news segment aired, calls came pouring in, but not calls from stranded motorists looking for help. Calls were pouring in about CHP officer Craig Pyre. The calls were from women reporting that the officer on the news had pulled them over for minor offenses, headlights, flickering taillights, things like that. But the stops were anything but routine. Pyre would direct them to pull down dead-end roads and talk to them about the most mundane things for 30 minutes to an hour. And many of the women had been directed to pull down that same desolate area near Mercy Road where Kara had been murdered. The women thought he was a damn creep and it wasn't just the women he had pulled over. Sergeant Jill Fleming was watching the news that night too, and she recognized the officer immediately. Pyre was the same officer she had that strange encounter with at the crime scene, the one who gave her the creeps. What the hell was that guy doing giving out safety tips? There was something else about that segment too. Some viewers noticed something about Pyre's face. It looked like he had fresh scratches on the right side of his nose. This was the 80s and camera equipment has come a long way, so it's not easy to spot. But it appeared the officer had scratch marks on his nose and on the right side of his forehead up near his hairline. Detectives knew at this point there had to be something to all this. But let's face it, it was going to be an uphill battle. He was a 13-year veteran of the force with a stellar record, a safety and training officer but it was looking more and more every day like he was a murderer too. Investigators would quickly discover that this flurry of creepy cop phone calls wasn't the first time Pyre's tactics had been called into question. According to court documents from a later civil suit, the month before Kara's murder, two people called CHP to report Pyre's conduct in making nighttime traffic stops at the bottom of the Mercy Road exit off-ramp. November 26, 1986, a mother called and reported to CHP operations that two days prior her 23-year-old daughter was driving southbound on I-15 when Pyre activated his lights and directed the young woman to exit the freeway at the Mercy Road off-ramp. The mother told the officer that she was concerned that a patrolman would take a young girl into such a dark and desolate area, and when her daughter spoke with Pire, he told her there was a problem with her headlights. And whatever the problem was, would become an issue in the summertime when trucks lose their tread. It was November, so that was kind of odd. And further, Pyre had asked the young girl to get out of her vehicle to look at her headlights and then asked her to turn them off as they continued to talk. The mother wanted to know if this was standard procedure for an officer to take a young woman to a dark area and have her cut off her lights. The officer on the phone explained that the patrolman had discretion to pull cars off the freeway because of the danger. But this seemed to the mom and anyone else with half a brain to be more than just a safety issue. This wasn't just right off an exit, but further down in a completely desolate area. So she pressed further and was told that someone would get back to her. And a couple of days later, pyre supervisor, Sergeant John McDonald, did. The supervisor made it clear to the concerned mother that his officer acted as a quote gentleman and in a professional and courteous manner. He went on to say that Pyre was right and did a good job. The mom called bullshit on all that, but seeing she was getting nowhere, declined to file an official complaint. Not only was the complaint not filed, but McDonald went on to commend Pyre for his actions during the stop. If that ain't enough to gag a maggot. Two weeks after that incident, Pyre stopped another young woman in a Volkswagen on I-15 at about 8.45 p.m. He ordered her to drive down the Mercy Road off-ramp. What it seems Pyre didn't realize was that this young woman's husband was also in the car. He was just laid all the way back in the passenger seat. But this stop was different. It was quick. Pyre wrote the woman a speeding ticket and then sped off himself before even making sure the couple had made it safely back on the highway. The location of the stop and Pyre's behavior was strange enough that the husband called to report it. He told the officer on the phone that he was concerned with the procedure by which his wife was pulled over at Mercy Road. He went on to tell the officer that stopping someone like that and making them pull down there would put whoever it was in great discomfort. And the way in which the stop was conducted outraged him. Again, the officer on the phone tried to reassure the man that the location was for safety issues. The call ended and no formal complaint was filed because the officer on the phone felt it was more of an inquiry about procedures rather than a legitimate complaint. It really was gonna be an uphill battle, but that wasn't gonna stop homicide investigators. 12 days after Kara was murdered, Craig Pyre was called in for questioning. According to investigators, as they spoke to investigate Discovery, at first it seemed Pyre was trying to play the old we're all friends here routine. He took super cooperative to a whole nother level. He came in and greeted other officers. And at first, detectives played the game. They asked him about his routines when conducting stops and he gave them that whole safety line of bull. Eventually, they got down to business and asked Pyre if he had killed Kara. He denied it, but then asked a question of his own. He said, but if I did do this, what would happen to me? That was a weird question. But even as the pressure turned up, Pyre remained cooperative. He agreed to a polygraph and then promptly tanked it worse than detectives had ever seen. At that point, though he walked out of the station a free man, investigators had their sights laser-focused on one of their own, Highway Patrolman Craig Pyre. But that will have to wait until next week, because unfortunately, we are running out of time and there is so much more to this story. I'll be back next Thursday to bring you the conclusion of Kara's case. So make sure you hit that subscribe or follow button if you haven't already so you don't miss it. In the meantime, you can find me on Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcasts. And if you're sick of ad interruptions, I've got good news for you. You can get all your episodes ad free just the way you like them for just $2 a month and as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other. made it to the bitter end again. And I'm about to disappoint you because there is no hot take this week. My life has went on a, I don't even know what you call it. Crazy turn of events, crazy, a lot of crazy turns of events. So my daughter broke her arm and then she mysteriously passed out in the shower. And I found out she has some type of syndrome where your vagal nerve can be triggered by hair washing and it causes you to pass out. But it was scary. If that ever, Have you all ever heard of that? Because I had never heard of that. So it's been a crazy couple of weeks and I planned on getting this entire episode out. But I don't know what I was thinking when I thought that besides I have a lack of sleep and I haven't been thinking probably straight for, you know, the past couple of weeks. Because there's no way to get this in one episode, and unfortunately, I do have time restraints. So here we are. I still thought I could break the hot take in half and give you half of it this week and the other half next, but that ain't going to work either because it doesn't exactly make sense until you have the whole story. So here we are. And I can't just keep you hanging on this long and not give you something, right? So instead of a hot take, I'll be making an announcement. I'd say drumroll please, but I don't even have a pencil or anything to make a drum roll with. So I'll just give it to you. Your girl got invited to CrimeCon 2024, which is in Nashville, Tennessee. That's it. That's the big announcement. Honestly, I don't think I've ever been more excited, though, because I've always wanted to go to Nashville. And I actually, like for real, got invited to come this time. Not like last year when I crashed Heather's Table or the year before when I was just there hanging out and having a grand old time. It's easy to do because CrimeCon's always a good time. If you haven't been before, you're definitely missing out. There's so many amazing creators there and so much to do and so much to learn. And since I actually officially got invited this time... I have a promo code that will save you 10%. And no, this is not an ad. It's really not. I really want you guys to come. And I, I really needed an excuse to like buy weird gifts because if you use my code, which is least at checkout, leased, least L-E-A-S-T, when, when you go to buy your CrimeCon ticket, if you use my code, I've got a special gift for you. Seriously. I like scoured the weirdest places on the internet to find gifts because I like strange gifts that you just can't find anywhere else. And I found several, I found five. So I have five now, but if more than five of you use the code, then I'll, I don't need an excuse to shop again. I'll do it and I'll bring it to you at CrimeCon. So if you do that, if you do, if you go on and buy your ticket and you use my code, Make sure that you send me a message on Instagram or Facebook or email me at least of these podcasts at, <laughs> I don't even know my own email address, least of these podcasts at gmail.com. I'll have something special for you at crime Con. And I hope I see all of you there because if I don't, then it's going to be lonely. I'm just going to be sitting over there with all my weird gifts. Anyway, it's getting late and I'm getting stupid. And it's still awkward to sign off after you've already signed off, but I'm gonna have to get used to that. All righty, well, I'll love you more than my luggage. Bye, boo And don't forget to come see me at CrimeCon. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.